Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to The Stages Podcast. Today my guest is musical theatre composer John Taylor. John Taylor is a composer and lyricist with a lifelong career in musical theatre. He is the composer of The Joyous Charlie Girl, a show that played 2,202 performances in London's West End and enjoyed a celebrated Australian production starring John Farnham, Anna Nagel, Geraldine Morrow and Derek Nimmo. The show was revived in London in 1986, starring Paul Nicholas, Dora Bryan and Sid Charisse. Drawing from the Cinderella narrative and the UK land tax, the musical was one of the most successful theatre shows of the 60s. Further compositions by Taylor include Daddy's Here, Mr and Mrs and The Royalty Follies. For several years he worked for Richard Rogers as musical supervisor for London and touring productions of The King and I with Yul Brynner and Virginia McKenna and revivals of The Sound of Music at the Apollo Theatre starring Petula Clark. John possesses an encyclopedic knowledge of the musical form and offers marvellous insights into the process of composition and shares anecdotes from a thrilling career in the theatre. Um, but that's only because you're excited, I guess. I'm nervous. Are you? I was never an actor. I was only a composer. But uh, what, nervous, since, nervous since I walked in the door? or No, 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 no. The, About um, when they all, I see all this electronics, it puts the shit up me, as my father used to say. Or the wind up me, I'm sorry. Same distance. Would <laughs> 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 you say same distance? Yeah, same yeah, Absolutely, absolutely. So you've just returned to Perth mm. after how many years? Well, I've been coming on and off just for visits, right. but I haven't lived here since 1955. Right. And which uh, suburb did you grow up in? Claremont. Claremont. Okay, so you've returned to the home suburb. At the bottom of Bayview Terrace. There was a block of flats called Bayview Mansions, which are now, they really are mansions. The whole place is split into about 60 or 70 flatlets, tiny little two one-room things with a sleep out. That's where we started when we came The suburb would have been quite open then, I guess. Oh, it was, it was. I mean... Where we are here, this wasn't even built. Right. I mean, this is what, almost Mount Claremont, and anything above the railway line was the desert. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> what was the first instrument you learned? Piano. piano. Always piano. And only piano? Or? No. When I was at Guildford, uh, I uh, studied the organ as well, but I wasn't ever able to be... I, th- I think I got used to the piano. And just using, you know, two pedals and just one keyboard and ten fingers. And, and I wanted to very much be able to play the organ. It's the second string to my bow, I suppose. I don't know how old was I, 14, 15, something like that. But I could never really get the hang in it. I persisted with it for two years and gave it up and went back to the piano. Right. Who was your piano teacher? Oh, dear old Mr. Palmer, his name was at Guildford Grammar School. I don't remember his first name, but he was, in his day, well-known. He was the choir master as well. Well, I learned about choir music from him. and I didn't used to sing in the choir. I never could sing. Since my voice broke, I've never been able to sing at all, really, except just enough to get by, which is just enough uh, to perform my own music. Uh, but usually it's better that somebody else with a voice sings my music as it's being auditioned for. You obviously remember your teacher very affectionately. Yeah, I do. Mr Palmer. So a teacher can make all the difference, can't they? Of course you can. They can either discourage you or do or teach you the right way. If they know that you're keen to do it and very keen and you just don't go away and play footy for, you know, the six days you're supposed to be practising and then you come back and you 
know exactly where you were before. I mean, what's the teacher to do? It's going to get worse and worse and worse with you, isn't it? Mm. But if he sees somebody with a bit of a spark and an interest and that loves what he's doing, and he, you know, oh, I'd rather can I play Debussy instead of I don't know, Bach, Beethoven, or Brahms, and they say yes, which is what Rex. Rex have you heard of Rex Hobcroft? Uh, yes, he was at UWA, wasn't he? Well, I, I, I don't know about that. No, well, when I was in my, just before my final years, uh, I'd left Guildford Grammar School and I was going to uni and I wanted somebody to keep on studying with. I went to the, somebody called the family, a Crisp, they were called. They lived in all those wonderful uh, high-rises are in... Oh, on the sort of north edge of King's Park. That was all beautiful old federal houses there, federation houses, I should say. And they lived there. And I was introduced to these people, and they kindly introduced me. So, well, somebody has just come out of the Air Force, and his name is Rex Hopcroft, and he's brilliant. This a da 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 da. You can have him or something. And as Rex was a bit broke in those days, bless his heart, uh, he died a few years ago now. And uh, he took me on. And he was, again, so wonderfully encouraging and encouraged me again. And it was, then I went to England for my career. I was only with him for two years, but it was a wonderful two years, let me tell you. And uh, when I came back to England, somehow or other, I mean, came back from England, somehow or other, through a third party, obviously, somebody put me in touch. When I mentioned the name Hopcroft, they said, Rex. Oh, yes, you know, he went on to found the Queensland Conservatory or Rhythm of Music and the this and the that. I said, oh, how wonderful. Is he still alive? She said, of course he lives, lives in Melville over in South Perth. I said, oh, I'd love to meet old Rex again. Well, we met. After, every time I came to Australia, we used to meet two or three times and we used to have a laugh and a giggle and a talk. Or, or always, it was always lunch over lunch. And then, of course, one day he wasn't there. Yeah. But he was... After Mr. Clive, uh, Clive Palmer, Mr. Palmer at uh, Guildford Grammar School, it was definitely Rex Hopcroft. You see, this is where it was all coming into me from Western Australia. And because my parents dragged me out here, I was too young to be able to argue. What did I know about Western Australia? It was the moon, really, for me. But So you weren't born here? No, I'm a, I was born in England. Right. Let's get that straight. But yeah. I'm a dual citizen, but I was born in England. As soon as World War Two was over, it brought me to Australia when I was 11, and I grew up in Australia until I went back to England. That's when so I went your to parents school. thought it might be a nice place to migrate to after... No, it wasn't anything to do no. actually with migration. My father, before, all during the... He was in World War One, and after he, obviously he survived it, he got a job with a tin mining company in, from Cornwall. Seen a pole dark, would you believe? <laughs> and so he went down there. He met somebody during the army and said, What are you going to do after all? He says, I don't know. And this man said to him, Well, come out to Malaya. My family owns tin mines out to Malaya. Malaya, he said. You know, he was a man from the coal mining area in the middle of England. Anyway, he went out to Malaya and from 1922 until he literally retired from tin mining, I think it was about 1950 or 60 he was in the tin mining business in Malaya so I won't go too much of the circumstances of my childhood but after many years had passed in 1946 and the war was over he was on the first ship something to do with the army which I can't remember understand even now he went out back to Malaya 
And then we were allowed to come back about six months later. My f mother, my sister and myself were allowed to go back to Malaya to be with my father. And they said, well, the boy is now, what is he, 11 years old or something. Now we've got to, uh, where is he going to be educated? England's too far away. How about West Australia? Because what had happened, my uncle, his brother, yeah. had escaped from the Japanese down to Western Australia, oh. which was a good place for him to be. He didn't want to sort of... He had to get further than Indonesia, put it that way. He didn't go up that way. He went down to Australia. Okay. As, and as he had this brother's connection with his brother here, and by then his family, his brother's family, he had, about, I think, one or two children by then, he said, all right, we'll send John down to Western Australia. So the whole thing came around, sort of like that. And I had nothing to do with any of this. I was just the little child that was Face. musical. Yeah. So, so you go to tertiary study... Am I right in understanding that you were going to study medicine or you wanted to study medicine? No, no, no. That was where medicine comes into it is simply because I wrote the music and lyrics for the review to help found and publicise that the University of WA wanted a medical faculty. I had nothing to do with medicine. At all, I never wanted to be a doctor. Right. Who said I wanted to be a doctor? Oh, well, well, that's where I've got confused. You wrote for the. Um, I wrote for the a review for the that's to right fundraising. to raise yeah. fundraising, yeah, yeah. which we did. We did do quite a bit. So, were you um, learning the basics of composition at, at school? What? Well, I ha obviously had. Well, yes, you do because as you're as you're learning piano, obviously you learn to you have to learn to read music. And if you learn to read music, then you can know what the notes are. You can, in theory, write music. So when I came, when I was at Guildford uh, for those years, I suppose I was started about when I was thirteen. I used to shut myself up in the music room, and all the other boys thought I was a big fat sissy, and why wasn't I on the footy pitch? You know, but I was always music, music, music. And uh, I used to. That's the manuscripts of which I've still got. In my childish 12, 13-year-old hand, I was beginning to compose music. Where it came from, I don't know. Presumably it was cribbed on all sorts of popular songs and films that I had seen, but that was the beginning of it. And what, it went on from there. Why is a, a music education uh, important to a person? Well, it isn't until it's, it's somebody that loves music. You can't educate musically somebody that's not interested. Right. Like you can't, I'm not interested, shall we say, in medicine. Yeah. You can't educate me in medicine. Right. You know, even if you gave me lessons for a year, I, w I wouldn't end up doing medicine. I was once told that musicians are good mathematicians. Are you a good mathematician? I'm the worst in the world. Oh, really? So that puts <laughs> a lie to that. That shoots that down, doesn't <laughs> <Yes>. it? <laughs> You've had a career um, as a composer, of musicals especially. Can, can any story sing? No, no, definitely not. A lot of good music has been put to stories that can't sing. And also a lot of good music has been put to stories that really, really can, and, they, and it's, they've been huge hits. Now, nobody would have thought... See, there's all shades of yes possibilities and all of this, and you can't go into it in any detail. But nobody thought that My Fair Lady could ever make it musical. It went round and round, and Rodgers and Hart, and Rodgers and Hammerstein, and this one and that one, Burton Lane, all these people. They all said, no, we can't do it. And one person, Alan J. Lane, thought, well, because he was an Anglophile, and because he had been educated in England, Somehow the mixture of the American with the English in his own brain, by then he was writing screenplays, remember, for MGM, 
um, he found a way of doing it. It wasn't going to be the lead man wasn't going to sing, he was going to speak sing. And of course that's what Meredith Wilson did when he later wrote The Music Man. Yeah, so they're reinventing the form. They're reinventing yeah. the form and the way of doing it. And they found, you have to find a key to something that if you believe can be musicalised, you, you musicalise it. Now they made a musical of a film called, the, well it was a book originally about Margaret Kinnan Rawlings called The Yearling. They made a, a wonderful film of that with, Janet, uh, with Jane Wyman and Gregory Peck and Claude Jarman Jr. Oh gosh, you know, in the 40s in Technicolor. And then they, about 25, 30 years later, they made a musical of it. So it's about a boy, farm, pet deer, crops, bad weather. It was a sort of rural musical, if you like. And it's, it looked good and it sounded good. And I, it's one of the best musical scores ever written, but it just didn't work. I guess you have to find those moments where the char- where, where the story sings. I mean, characters can only express so much in dialogue. Mm-hmm. It then needs to extend into into song. Look, there are so many ways of doing that, Peter. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say yes, that's the right way, or no, that's the wrong way. Oh, right. Subjects either talk to you, or you have to batter them into the, your way of thinking. Both ways have worked and probably still do. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought that Les Miserables could have been a musical? Yeah, exactly. And such a popular musical. Absolutely. Yeah. But you have to find, you have to batter it into a musical shape. But nobody would have tackled that, but I don't think but French people, who were, of course, the right people to write that subject. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But when it comes to things like The Yearling, and I've had experience with this, all, every musical composer, don't let them kid you, when he reaches the age of 50, will have at least anything up to four or five musicals on the shelf that will never be produced. We all have that. And because they will, they couldn't get backing because for some reason the money wasn't there or the times were unripe or they just didn't work, usually the latter. You, um, you had your first um, piano outing at the Madge in Perth, didn't you? Yep. Tell me about that. Well, I knew I was doing gigs... Uh, all during university, actually, and around Perth, weddings, nightclubs, all those sorts of things. And I was a member of the Musicians' Union in those days. Uh, and when it came to the fact that I was leaving for England, and I said to the union, look, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm not going to subscribe anymore, because they said, oh, listen, look, before you go, we have a three-week season at the Her Majesty's Theatre, and what they want is they, want an, they don't want any overture, they don't want any interval, uh, interval uh, like on tracks, and they don't want any walking out thingy playing of, of an orchestra. I said, well, that's, that's how do you variety of that, that? I said, we will show you, which they did. They, they got the orchestra there, obviously, but I played piano as they were walking in, and then the lights went down and then quietly prepped in. Of course, these days they'd have a tape, wouldn't they? Mm. Uh, Kept the orchestra kept in, and of course the overture started. Half time, everybody's talking and chatting. My light would come on, I would go, and I would play popular medleys of the day. The lights would then go down, and the orchestra would keep in, and da 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 da. Now that went on for three weeks, and it was twice daily, and it was a nice gig. I think I got the princely sum in those days of eleven pound a week for two performances. Uh, a day, so that was it for three weeks. I was walking away to England or the continent as I was going first, with three pounds at least in my pocket. So I was going to spend, wasn't I? Like a hot cake. 
And I, thought, I enjoyed that very much, and I said bye bye. And it was a lovely, I, to me, it was a lovely note to end on because, of course, I'd seen many a production by then. Uh, I saw Evie Hayes was her name yeah. uh, doing Annie Get Your Gun. I saw somebody else do. Um, Oh, Oklahoma came, I remember, and we saw lots of amateur productions like Floradora, 1066 and all that. There was a huge demand for the magic in those days, huge demand. But this is all prior to television. Yeah, yeah. You see? So when I got to England, that was my first job was in Australia. How old were you when you went to England? 21, exactly. Your Just a matter of a few birthday. weeks after, yeah. yeah, my 21st birthday. So you were going off to um, find a career in, in the arts? I was going to see if streets were paid for gold, wasn't I? Right. This is the old thing. And I thought I had talent. It's, you have to believe in yourself. Or who else is going to believe in you? So I thought, all right, first thing, at least I've got piano playing. And I do have a sort of resume, brief though, maybe. And so I had to audition like anybody did for summer stock. And I got the first audition I got for, I got this job, and I was up there somewhere in the north of England, and that sort of snowballed until eventually I got stuff in the West End, and then I met this one who met that one, and the word gets around, it's like ripples in a pond. And that bef before uh, the first West End show I ever wrote music for, which was in 1962 or three, the Prince Charles musical, um, that was from 55 to 62, that was seven years of doing the rounds all over England and Scotland and doing all sorts of jobs, playing in nightclubs, uh, even writing music occasionally for people that asked me. That, because as the name became known and the piano playing became known, your career, my, my career expanded. Were your parents happy about a career in the arts? No. Right. Definitely not, especially it's my father. It's hard to father. convince our parents, isn't it? Very, <laughs> very, very. My father was, a, as, as I've told you, he was a hydraulic tin mining engineer. And what he saw in me as doing music was totally beyond his ken. And my mother didn't even encourage me. And I had a sister, basically, it was where my, most of my love of music came from who was a dancer and she loved, she dragged to see all the musical th shows of the day and the musical films of the day. And that's where my musical love for music really was born when I was maybe six, seven, eight years old, were you, during World War Two. Were you collecting records? No, no, no. I didn't start any record or musical collection until I reached Guildford Grammar School and then when I was 13, that's when I started. And I've ended up with 6,000 pieces of sheet music and I have already given away also maybe 500 or 600 LPs and tapes and CDs and all that. Do you have a favourite genre? I would say, what, you mean musical theatre? Yeah, musical theatre or classical it. music? No, musical no, no. I have a Catholic taste in music, but my favourite genre is definitely musical theatre. You were working in a variety of venues, as you say. That must require um, recalibrating the performance size all of the time. Well, you had to adapt. Obviously, if you're yeah. going to talk, if you were going to go to a night, pay for a nightclub and the people are going to chat and clink glasses, you have to adapt to that. If, on the other hand, you're playing in a small orchestra at a little variety show somewhere on the outskirts of London, then you're just part of a unit and you don't have to bother with any of that. If you're actually playing solo somewhere, say at a wedding, then you've got to know what you're doing and you are there to help. You were working with some big names too, um, people like Charlie Drake and Donald Wolfert and Adam Faith. Oh, 
So, Jesse oh, Matthews. Oh, absolutely. Is there any, any There's Jesse up there? Oh wow. <laughs> are, are there any any people that stand out for you that you might have an interesting story about? Well, that you can share. Well, I was going to say yes. <laughs> very few of those, I'm afraid, because show business people are very scabrous at times, and they're um, you know you a lot about them. They don't want. Well, like I told you about Noel and his. Uh, Thing about we're talking about Mr. Coward. Yes, Mr. Coward. You know, I happen to do a show with him. And there's on my piano right there is Anne Eagle, who had her biggest hit of her life and the biggest hit of my life uh, with Charlie Girl. Charlie. And he always used to always to me say, "How's the show going? Oh, doing fine now." Because he obviously went to see. So, He'd written a few himself, of course. Oh, of course, he had mm. in his time. It always mystifies me about the British public seeing Anna Eagle. She can't sing, she can't dance, and she can't act. A real triple threat. Yeah, a real triple threat. Yes, it was that. But, I mean, I'm not going to say anything bad about anybody, really. No, no. But I have met them all, and they've been very amusing and very, very instructive, including Richard Rogers was an absolute gentleman. I've heard terrible things about him, because he'd been in it all his life, and he was very strict, and he had to be. He had running a bloody corporation, you know, through his music. Well, you worked with the Rogers and Hammerstein organisation. Oh, yeah. Well, on I had to, yes, yes. Um, with the King and I. That's right. We had to go over to America. The first thing I was coaching Virginia McKenney, who actually won the uh, the award and the role opposite Yule when we went to the play dance coaching her. She, she says, lovely, bless her heart. Bless you, Virginia. Uh, she said lovely things about me in her book. And... Uh, but there was also another lady involved in that which, who didn't get the role, but who managed to get backing to play it later, a few years later, called Susan Hampshire, oh, who was quite a big star in London mm-hmm. at that time. But Virginia played, and we all had to, we all rehearsed in London, then we had to go out to Rogers and Hammerstein office and do all the contracts and all the paperwork stuff there. And then we had to go up to the Hotel Pierre where Richard Rogers and or Mr. and Mrs. Rogers lived, had this suite and <laughs> the Hotel Pierre. And we had play for them. And, well, actually, Dorothy wasn't allowed in the room. She, Dorothy had to go. We played for Richard, and he was, no, you're taking it too fast, John. You're taking it too fast. Hello, young lovers, where are And he was, we were there for two hours. It was absolutely wonderful, and he died about nine months later. Wow. Um, what was your role then? You were a musical supervisor? I was musical, no. no? I... I was musical coach to these two ladies, the two leading ladies. Mrs. Anna. Either or, you know, both of those used to come at shift unbeknownst to the other because one never let the other know that they were doing it. It would have been bad publicity, you see. We had to save the star for the big announcement of actually who was Virginia. And uh, the, the idea was I was a musical coach. I had to play for them all the time. I just didn't, you know, somebody wasn't just down there playing and I was up here saying, now this and you do this and da, 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 da. I don't believe in all that. They come to me when they can, they must have some form of voice before I even take them on. But what I do is I encourage them to act with the voice instead of just sing. One of the things I get upset about, this is one of my, hmm, Soapboxes, which I was quickly swift, get off it. People are taught to sing, but very few have either a talent or are encouraged to interpret what they're singing. Playing the text. Playing yeah. the text. Playing, which is even more difficult because it doesn't give you enough time to make an impact. It's just doing a 32-bar 
chorus of a simple song like I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night. Now you can sing it one way, we can sing it another. You've got to sing what the lyric says and you are on a stage. Uh, but the voice doesn't have to be an opera voice, it just has to be somebody in that role that's as she was, a slum kid. You're working with your life partner at this time also on, on this show. Oh, yes, show. yes, yes. Yeah. Both the big shows, the big revival shows, uh, I was working with him on those two. And he was the one that said, uh, I want you to come to America to meet the Hammersteins and we'll do it with Richard Rodgers. And da, 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 da. Otherwise, I was just a vocal coach. Right. But right. then, you know, off I go to America because I'd already been to America and been offered a contract with a wonderful firm called Edwin H. Morrison Company, who are still extant today, although they're part of Warner Chapel organisation. And they wanted me to stay in New York, but uh, I had a partner who didn't want me to stay, so I went back to England. But uh, So this is uh, Ross Taylor? Yes. Same, same name? Same name, no same relation. surname. No, no relation. So was he uh, the resident director, or what was his role on the shows, the Hammerstein shows? He was the impresario, if you like. Right. Okay. He got the money, he got the cars together, he got the contracts together, he got the stage, the set designer, he got, for instance, on the on the King and I, I went over with him as sort of bait, I think, because I could chat as much as he could, as you can understand, but I talk now. <laughs> and uh, he got, says, well, again, whilst we were there with Richard Rodgers, we got introduced to Irene Sheriff, the wonderful Hollywood dress designer who did so many Broadway shows as well. And it was through us talking and through golden tongues and our enthusiasm that she said, yes, I'll do it. And Irene, bless her heart, she came to London, she went, and she was on her knees for like a month. We didn't know she had cancer. Right. And she she couldn't even stay for the opening. But it was the last show she ever did. So this is the first big revival of The King and I? It, this had been revived quite a few times With in Mr. London. Brennan. No, no you never been to London. That was the right. great selling point. Right. And of course, the six o'clock news, it went all over the BBC, all over the television. You Britain's come to London. You Britain's. And of course, my partner knew that. If he could come to London. And it just so happened, it was, again, he was very lucky. A lot of people are in show business. It's all luck, isn't it, basically? Um, he was looking for a, a way to stay out of America for a year or more. And I think it was tax. I mean, this is obviously the usual way people do things. And it just was that particular time, and he came over, we had him over, he came over, and he was up to you, such a gentleman, he wanted was to be, it? oh, he was a devil incarnate, but when he wanted to be, oh, he oozed charm, and gentlemanliness, and soft-spoken, and all that, and he was in the Palladium, he got into the Palladium that morning, and he was looking around, and he switched the lights on up, well, came the lights, and ever been in the Palladium, it's absolutely, mm. ah, exhilarating, just mm. to be on that stage and look out. And he strode up and down, up and down. Stood in the middle like this, like the king with his hands on his hips. He said, yes, I come, I come. And he was already being the king. Fantastic. So he came to that. Must have been such a magnetic performance. Oh, oh. He took that show to even greater glory. Yeah. And then he went back to um, America about 18 months later, whatever it was, after he'd been in England for all that time at the play, didn't he? He lived, he played that role until he died. Went round and round and round until it killed him or he killed it. I don't it's know. extraordinary that those performers that we associate with a role, you know, um, Carol Channing and, and, and Dolly Levi, of course, mm. and Topol and Fiddler on the Roof. and That's right. Rex Harrison. And yes. It's either a meal ticket or it isn't. And sometimes, bless their hearts, and I'm very happy with this, that people like Rex and Newell had that 
up their sleeves all their life if it was always there. Yes, it's admirable that they can have such longevity and, you know, that, that sort of playing that performance eight times a week for That's right. many years. I don't know how they do it. I mean, I could never act like that. <laughs> uh, and then the next big revival was The Sound of Music. Oh, yes. That was huge. And the funny thing about it was the uh, William Matt and Rogers were dead by this time. So the, the son... One of the sons had taken over, who was called William Hammerstein. There was another son called Jimmy Hammerstein, all right. Uh, he didn't have much to do with this at all, but William Hammerstein was, the, at the moment, at that time, the big wheel. So he came over to the England and walked around the... Uh, well, no, they both did. I remember now. Jimmy came, yes, they both came. And there was... They walked into the Apollo Victoria, which is absolutely vast and has no atmospherics at all for a musical. It was absolutely dreadful. It was a cinema before it was ever a musical theatre. And um, they tried musicals once or twice, but it never worked. And they walked around there and, and they both agreed that Jimmy and Billy Hammerstein both agreed. Now, this is this halfway up the Apollo Victoria, there's a little break. There's like three blocks of seats here and then there's a break because as all theatres narrow then the, it blocks down to two so between the two you have this two gangways down here and you go into the one gangway for the two so this is where we chopped the theatre off it was sort of about mm, three-fifths of the way up the theatre was the front and then all the back and then there was the circle he said we closed the circle and this is where we and I remember my partner saying he said no what are you talking about? You can't do that. Well, this is the sound of music. Nobody really wants to see the sound of music, you know, unless you get a decent cast, which he was getting together by the way. He'd already got Petula, let me tell you. He hadn't got June, I don't think he got Petula June. Petula Clark. Yes. That was quite a coup. Oh, he got Petula Maria. Clark. Yeah. And she took, look, look, many a lunch, many a dinner was spent uh, persuading her because she, I don't know whether she really didn't want to do it or she felt incapable of doing it. I felt she was really feeling, bless you, wherever you are, Petula, uh, really feeling very doubtful because she'd never done anything like that before. Well, she went on to make a name in quite a number of theatre roles and most recently Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard. Exactly, yeah. but this is what gave her a new something in her career because she was not doing musicals before that. She was the world's greatest pop singer yeah. for a long, long time. Well, she said, eventually she said yes. And, of course, when that was announced, it was as big as you, Brenda, coming to London. Petula Clark's first British musical, Sound of Music, and thought, how can she play the Sound of Music? You know, because she's Petula Clark. But you see, oh, they, they, they must either know deep down that they can or they can't, even if they do have a lot of persuading to be done with them. She did. She was wonderful. Both of those shows had children. Yes. And I imagine casts that would continually need to, to change. All the time. Is that a bother? Oh, it's part of the business, oh, I suppose. It's part of the business, and you don't put on that show unless you budget for all those chaperones and those extra rehearsals with the pianos and the lights on and all that. You have to add that all in on the production cost, so you better have a hit. Mm. <laughs> Do you have a favourite theatre in London? Me? Oh, probably The Palace yeah. for musicals. Why? Uh, it's got that sort of very Edwardian feel about it it's warm the sound is excellent it wraps itself around you uh it has a, just a great atmosphere like the palladium has um, i want to talk about composition now before we get into your big hit charlie girl mm -hmm. what comes first the music or the lyrics ah 
Well, as the Gershwin said, the contract. <laughs> <laughs> then <laughs> you start work. This is when you are offered a show. Mm. Now, I have written one show which was not on offer. I just did it because I wanted to do it. The rest are done on contract. So you get an idea, you work it up within your own thing, and then before it's actually sold, you have to get a contract. And before you're an idiot, if you just sign on the line of whatever's, yeah, you whatever's on the piece of paper. And this is when the tough start, tough bit starts, and that's the start. I actually, I mean, I'm a, I'm a composer. I'm not a businessman. No, no. Thank goodness I had a, a partner who was very hard on business, mm. very very clever, and that. Once all that was done, then we could go and do things like Charlie Girl and other shows that obviously never went on because everybody has a few of those, as I say, in their drawers. But what comes first, the lyrics or the music? It, well, it could be either. What comes first, usually, if you're doing a, a book musical that interests you, is the title for a song in a particular scene or for a particular artist in a particular time in that show, when that sort of particular song needs to be dramatic or comedic or whatever. So you've got to fit that title to that situation in that type of musical. So you've got about four or five things going on. Once you there, that's a good title. And that person can would say that sort of thing. And then you can go on and think, now, it's, it's going to be a happy song. It's going to be a miserable. It's going to be an up song. It's going to be a major key. It's going to be a minor key. What am I going to do with this thing? And, and then you, it takes, sometimes it falls. Over Berlin can do it overnight. Yeah. I must admit I can't. Yeah. But then that was a different era, really. Uh, it, it, takes, it can take up to three weeks. And it's easier and better to be able to do it yourself, music and lyrics, which is why I eventually ended up writing both music and lyrics, uh, like a Cole Porter than collaborating with someone. It was very difficult collaborating on Charlie Girl because there was another entity involved who was of a entirely different generation to what I was. Anyway, I don't think that's anything particularly to damage the music but or to make it different in any way. It's just that it's easier to do with people of your own generation, of your own time and of your own mind. When you're completely of a different stranger, look at the problems Gilbert and Sullivan have together. Yeah. They were totally... Dis disalike. Oh, well, Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Tim gave up eventually and walked away. Yeah. Had to. What are the qualities that a good composer should possess? Patience? Resilience? <sighs> Belief? The will to work and work and work and be entirely alone. <sighs> yes, I imagine it's a solitary. It's a profession. very sol solitary thing. And you had to be prepared to, I suppose maybe if an artist or a book writer does this, but it's the same process. You have to shut yourself up and just sweat it out. And it can, I can, often I've written a title and I've written the music for the entire thing and said, now I've got to write the lyric. And of course, when it just can't get the lyric to work, then you have to sort of adapt the lyric or you have to start tidging around with the melody until it comes together. So there's many forces at play. Of course, which fascinate me, also I wouldn't bloody do it, would I? No, no. I think it's an absolutely wonderful 
collaboration with oneself. And then, of course, you have to do it for the material, and then you have to do it for the artist. So it's continually ongoing and can be very exhausting, let me tell you. <laughs> have you only written for theatre or have you written for film? I wrote a film right. with my collaborator on, uh, or co-writer, I should say, on, on Charlie Girl, uh, which was a very awful pop film because I can't really write pop music. It was expected to star this pop star, which it did star, and is shown to this day, would you believe, on Australian television about every three months, every three years. And I absolutely, all I did... All I had to do, thank goodness as it turned out, was just write a couple of three songs of my own, plus collaborate with David Henneker on three or four others, and the others were sort of pop music, pops into the shows. I had nothing to do with it whatsoever. What was the film called? I've called I've Got a Horse. I've Got a Horse. It was about the Derby. Okay. Who did it star? Should I tell you? Billy Fury. Well, he's long gone. Right, okay. Well, we'll, we'll, I'll look out for it. <laughs> you can phone up Jem and say, when are you next showing I've got a horse? It only seems to come on Jem every three years. Right, okay. <laughs> What's involved with writing dance arrangements? Oh, that's a whole different ball game. I mean, I think I got my oh, love of doing that sort of thing, as well as just playing the piano, as well as writing music and lyrics, and eventually libretto, from a lady called Trude Rittman. Now, Trude Whitman was Rogers and Hammerstein's musical arranger. So when they first did a ballet for Oklahoma, which revolutionised first half finale, it was a ballet, they can't do that. Well, of course they did. I mean, everybody knows that started a whole new trend. Who wrote this, who adapted the little themes and little bits and put soldiers all together, was Trude Whitman, bless her heart. And then, of course, after that, she did all the rest of them. She did The King and I. She went on and on and on, working with Agnes de Mille and especially Rogers and Hammerstein. And, of course, I was... How old was I when The King and I came out? I was 20-something. I don't know what. And I got the score. I've got it sitting on the shelf to this day. I'm like, what she did with the ballet for Uncle Tom's Cabin in um, The King and I was absolutely miraculous. Mm. And she heard all the sounds in her head. Here we do the finger cymbals, there we do the, the gongs, there we do the this, and this is how we do the voices. We go up and we go down. And this is all what I call a musical arrangement. And now that's added vocal. A thing like the ballet in Carousel or the ballet in uh, uh, Oklahoma, they're all music. All right. But that's still, all those themes have to be adapted and if the choreographer wants, you know, the, somebody to stab somebody or somebody to rape somebody, that's got to come out of Rodgers and Hammerstein. If I loved you. Man, that, that's not easy to put in a very dramatic situation. This is what a musical arranger does. He gets familiar themes from the show and he has to, or she has to put them, sew them all together. And even when you're doing musical arrangements of a song, you, you can do that. You can't elaborate as much as you can in a musical song, but you can certainly put different harmonies. And when you hear people like Cy Coleman or Richard Rodney Bennett playing a perfectly ordinary song and you hear what they've arranged for the piano, it's not just the sheet music. Oh, no, they're playing an arrangement. It is brilliant. And so I was drawn to all that from the beginning. You, you needn't just write music. There's a whole other aspect to musical theatre or performancing, and that's musical arranging. Yeah. You compose for the theatre as well. I'm thinking of a play called The Kingfisher, with oh, John yes. McCallum and Willie Withers and Frank yes. Thring. That's right. 
So there, there was no singing in that? What, what no. did that entail? What, that was an underscoring? or They wanted, yes, they wanted a theme for a kingfisher. The bird, yeah. the kingfisher. So they said, would you play for a... I said, kingfisher? What's a kingfisher? I want to do for a kingfisher. Anyway, I sat down, did all that kind of stuff. Now, that was just, what do you put it? Entrance, interval and walkout music. It was the theme from. Like in the old days in silent movies, yes. <laughs> they used to the theme from whatever it was, starring Gloria Swanson, before talkies really came and there was that theme. Yep, yep. And this is the same thing as that. You. You're great and wonderful, Charlie Girl. It's you. I'm gonna bundle on, Charlie Girl. I'm an awkward, tongue-tied kind of a fella who falls in love with someone smashing and then can't tell her just one look at you and I do mean no. I've got a lot to say, but me must stay shut. Though she scares me all to death Here we go then take a breath How about loving me, Charlie girl You, you're great and wonderful So we thought, well, somebody's idiotic enough If you want to put it like that They want to uh, see if we can write a musical We should bloody well do that So we start new Monday, new Monday And then of course the, the obvious one always For neophytes like we were Was Cinderella. So this version of Cinderella was banded forth between me and my partner and it we had two or three uh, scripts that we ourselves wrote. Then we eventually had to go to a professional. Ray Cooney, who eventually did the uh, theatre of comedy, he was the first scriptwriter ever to write for Charlie Girl. The fact that it ended up with Hugh and Margaret Williams, who wrote many a wonderful film and West End plays, is another subject which we won't go into. Uh, but uh, all through that time, it was it was coming together. And what was what was the point of your point, your question? Oh, you, how, how did um, the property come into your orbit? I mean, how was it created? Who had it, the idea? How did it germinate? It was it was first this impresario going on and on and on for about two years. You got to write a musical, and then eventually, all right, we said, well, we will write a musical. And it was written, it was, uh, the score was written, there was a script, it was changed by the first writer, obviously it was changed by the second writer, the second script person, and it was changing as we went along writing the score. I was, in, I was uh, brought in with, uh, uh, by uh, Larry Pons to, to work with David, because I was, by then, I wasn't well enough known. And so I had to have a, a crutch, as it were, that, so they thought I, had, I needed a crutch. So the, the majority of the score had been written. If you look at the score, you'll see that the majority is John Taylor. And there's this bit here and this bit there is David Henry and a couple of very, very good songs by David alone were in that. So it was like 50% or 60% Taylor, 30% something like Taylor Henniker and the other 10% was Henniker. So they didn't re- want to risk the, the product on a, no. a, a newbie? No, on, on a newbie. No, so they wouldn't they take someone. that. No. So was David Henniker was a little bit older than you? Oh, yes. Yeah. He was ex-army, right. which didn't help me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yes, he had a he'd had a major hit like just a year or two before that with Half a Sixpence. And it was a very difficult collaboration because I was young, brash, 
I knew it all, of course, yeah. as we all do yeah. when we're young and brash. And I had faith that I had written half the score already. And although this, the show hadn't been sold, it was probably an extremely good idea, and I'm not knocking it, that a well-known figure was brought in to write the music. But we'd already got a well-known figure on the script by then, which was Hugh and Margaret Williams, so why not bring in somebody well-known to help with the music? So that all eventually came together, and the result was the cast. Actually, I think it was the cast that made that show as much as anything else. Well, people like Derek Nimmo. Derek Nimmo, yes. Anna Quayle. See, he'd never sang in his life. He'd never been on stage, I think, hardly in his life. Big television star. Nimmo? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all Gas and Gators and all those TV series. I guess he was buoyed on by someone like Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady and that he could sort of speak sing, perhaps. Well, no, he couldn't even do that. <laughs> I, quite honestly, no. Uh, we had him up to audition, David and I, and said, now, uh, <laughs> what are you going to sing for us, Derek? He says, oh, I don't know, dear boys. You know, da, da, da. I said, well, sing the bloody national anthem, if you like. So he said, God save our Christ. Thank you, Derek. Yes, OK, OK, OK. So he really had nothing to sing. That's why he was a, virtually a non-singing role. But he, he was did a, big, a talk song, but he was a big star. Big TV star, yeah. So this is what I'm talking about, how to write musicals. Yeah. You don't just write them. It's all ingredients have to be adapted or knocked out or put back in. Or, uh, it's an ongoing process until the very first night. And then you had a pop singer in your uh, leading role. Joe Brown was extremely famous at the time, like Johnny Farnham was when he did it in Australia. Extremely, yeah. so he had a huge built-in public, quite pop star. Derek Nimmer had a huge built-in public from the comedian on television. Anna Neagle had a film public going back to the, well, she was in, she was a Cochrane young lady, and that's in the show. But she was a big film star. Basically, she forgot, her course days were forgotten. She was a big film star. So, all that was a good cast. And this is what my partner always managed to cast people that people, other people would know. It was a box office sort of aid, if you like. And, and, and one of the themes is the class system, is it? Yes, it's yeah. about the class system. In those days, there was a, ream, a stream of uh, very socialist Labour governments in England, and uh, they walloped on a huge inheritance tax on places like Downton Abbey and anywhere yeah. like that. And at that time, there were probably about five or six hundred beautiful, beautiful, what we call stately homes in England, all over England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland at that time. And uh, eventually, after World War Two, it was just too cost, you know, prohibitive for them to do. So rather than pay inheritance tax, which you see they had to, they would give it naturally to them, or they, they were unable to be sold because they were too big, nobody wanted it. Now, the only thing to do was to knock them down. So this is when England lost about 40, 50, 60%, a vast percentage of its beautiful homes like Downton Abbey. And this, the, the subject of Child Girl is basically about the husband is dead, this poor widow is left with two or three children, they're all girls, and she's got to have, marry them off, hopefully well, if she wants to keep the place, or she's going to be, it's going to be demolished within the next year. Yeah. So that was the beginning, of the, and people were aware of that at that time. Now, many of the time, because the rights have reverted to me in my old age, because of my partner, who's had the grand rights of insurance, that's a whole other ball game. And I've been, let us, can we revive Child Girl? And I said, no, it's, please don't revive it. I won't let you revive it because it's of its time, it's of its era. And I don't think anybody would literally understand it. 
right. anymore. If it's sort of funny, like, well, there's a thing like anything goes, which as long as you do it in the 20s, it's then become a, a museum piece, piece and yeah. it's, it's a comedy and you just laugh at it for what it is. Not only because it's musical, and it's, but it's also a bit stupid and a bit naive. And we say, well, that's Charlie Girl from the 60s. It'll probably take another 20 years before that becomes a period piece. But at the moment, it's neither chalk nor cheese, so just leave it be. Well, that's impressive that you're not letting your heart rule your head. Your, oh, your head's yeah. thinking there. Mm, Do you is. have a favourite number from the show? Oh, that's difficult. Um, it, probably, it probably be one of... Probably be one of mine, dare I say, bless you, David, but uh, we only wrote special material. But I think the one I like best is Bells Will Ring, quite honestly. Yeah. Which is the first girl, first song that the girl, Charlie Girl, sings in the show. When I'm in love, I'm bound to know it. For bells will ring from out of the sky. And when I one who loves me, they'll ring out loud, and I'll know why. And though it seems perhaps fantastic, a thousand lights will flicker all around. This I know will happen. Then it comes back with a waltz underneath, so you have two songs going at once. And I thought that was very really clever. I think it's very tuneful. It changes key a lot. And I all talked to technicalities, which sound... I won't go into over the phone. It's boring, but I mean, it all makes one piece and it all fits absolutely beautifully together in two different, entirely different key... key uh, not keys, but in two entirely different tempos. One's a waltz and one's a foxtrot. Once it was up and running, what was your involvement? We, could you walk away then and just... Uh... I could walk away and just sit back and happily and get my royalties. <laughs> did you have to go in and check on it every now and then? Or... Well, I did. I guess the Australian it... production, you came out to see that? Well, I came out especially to see it, but having had, having been a proven success, I wasn't going to go in there and say to anybody, now, listen, we did it this way because that's a sure way to make a cast despondent and say, who is this, you know, person? No, you don't do that. No, I had nothing to do with it except... I was able to look at it by then, as all the years had passed, remember, since it first went on, I was able to look at it as though I'd never written it, and it was up to everybody, now I'm going to sit back and you're going to entertain me. The fact that I'd done it five, ten years, however it was, before that, never entered my mind. It was a piece of theatre I was going to see. I went there for nostalgic reasons. Yeah. Many, many years in the theatre. Are you superstitious? No, I don't think I am. No. My partner was very superstitious and all the all the boring things, but no, not me. Did you have an opening night ritual that you would go through before? Look, I'm a very ordinary person, no. Oh. no. I'm a hard-working muso. I don't, I don't have things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Fascinating. <laughs> Some people are. I know. Did you read your reviews? 
Oh, of course I did. Yeah. Did you take note of them? Or? Of course I noted them. And I thought, well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? Yeah. Oh, it's quite philosophically. Philosophical. Because remember, I've done a couple of... Sh- well, I had been involved in a couple of West End shows before that. Right. Six of One was a big review with a British star called Dora Bryan. And then there was a Prince Charles musical, which, uh, where we did with Cicely Gornish and Donald Wolfett. And that was a musical, sort of like a variety recreating the period at open the Prince Charles Theatre which shortly after that became a cinema <laughs> <laughs> so in 1982 you went to the USA yes how was that different culturally to the UK well it didn't in any way bother me because I was sort of really by then how old was I goodness sake I must have been 50-something, I suppose, yes. And uh, I'd grown up, after all, since I was this high, on Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and all the American films as well as the English films, which they could hardly make during the war, uh, because they didn't have the money or the materials. Uh, And when I got there, I thought, oh, this is almost like coming home. Mm. I, I was accustomed to their architecture, and I was, well, they had, they opened, but by then they'd opened a McDonald's in London. So I was even accustomed, if you like, to some of their food. And I'd been going backwards and forwards to New York, uh, oh, often on business, because I had, uh, as I talked to you about Edwin H. Morris, the music publishers in those days, they, they did a couple of British musicals of mine they published, you know, and that, I had to, that originally came from America. They sent me back to England, said, no, you stay in England, da, 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 so I did. So, I mean, I was very familiar by then with, that was New York. New York is certainly not California where I ended up because I only went up to really to California for climatic purposes. I was getting old and a bit creaky and I wanted to sit in the sun. Yeah, why not? Yeah. And now you're back in Perth. Yeah. And you're still having musicals produced. Well, Recently enjoyed Silas Marner. Tell us about that. Well, that was a... I had officially been retired at least 10 years before that. But you know, the old devil's still in the brain somewhere. And whilst I was always writing music songs... I wouldn't say it was music, just songs and ideas for songs. After all that time, drifting in the sun, having a lovely life and travelling here, there and everywhere, and I suppose living off high off the hog, I suppose, I thought, no, I'd like to do something a bit more creative now. I've had a good long rest. I've had a wonderful retirement. Now I want to just pick up the reins again. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Off the shelf came this little penguin book called Silas Marner. I hardly knew anything about George Eliot. And I read this book and it totally blew me away. Yeah. It was, oh, so cleverly. It was like an Agatha Christie detective story because whatever happens here on page 300 goes right back to page 60. And it's, it was just a wonderful conundrum. She's a very clever writer. I love her work. And, but it was a simple story, beautifully told. And nearly on every page as you said which comes first the musical the lyrics as I was reading it I thought my god that's a song title oh my god that is wonderful that whole paragraph could be condensed into a song so as I was reading it this germ was being born and why I picked it up in the first place I shall never know but this is why this is how things happen so what right so there I was, you know, in Palm Springs, living the life and blah, blah, blah. But I was working and, and I worked and I worked more and more and more. So eventually, it took about a year and a half, but the whole thing was written and typed out and scripted and copied and manuscripted. And I thought, isn't that lovely? Now, what are we going to do with this? All right, you've amused yourself. Stick it in a drawer. So I did. Right. And it stayed there for 25 years. Wow. All right. 
I never expected to be the age I am. So I call this now being in Australia my second retirement, you see. And when I came back here, I said, I, I had this idea. I'd like to be able to do something. To, this is where they really encouraged me here. You know, I was too young to be encouraged when I was six and seven and eight. I liked it. But when I got to Australia and went to Guildford and the uni here and did all the gigs here, was in the music business here, I thought, listen, you're this old, about time you gave something back. I know you've written for audiences and they've given you back and you've given in a way them the reason for giving it back to you. But now I want to give back anybody who wants it. If they want any knowledge from me, if they want any help from me, if they want any, anything to do, anything to sing, anything to write, anything to perform, come to me. And this is really... I'm still sorting out my own life, as you can see, having lived on about four continents over the years. Uh, I'm still sorting that out, but I'm also now going around saying, or people are approaching me, for instance, like with Silence Marla. And this, the school came, the college came to me and said, we'd, we'd like to do it. I mean, they had to hear it first. Obviously, they came and heard it, hear it first, and it was done through somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. I had no links, of course, except familiar... Friends, I've still got school chums here and university friends here and relatives here. I've always had those. But it takes the networks to start. And they heard it and they said, yes, we'll do it. It was only like a workshop, but they were keen to do it. It's something entirely different. And the, the second viewing of this is sort of, well, it's not an active viewing of it, is uh, for a charity where they're doing basically most of the score at a charity performance at a church. And this, I'm so happy that people are hearing something and it's not costing them anything, I don't think, or because I had to pay to go and see the things, but only very, very nominal, yeah. you see. And I thought, oh, thank goodness, if I can plug George Eliot or Rogers and Hart or whoever I can do um, to a wider audience in the years I've got left, I'm going to damn well try and do it. And that's, that's how that whole thing came about. Brilliant. Thank you. It's nice to have you back in Perth. Very nice. You do welcome you. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> and uh, you had a nice time having a chat. Very difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. Very wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> we heard some brief snippets from the original Australian cast recording of Charlie Girl there throughout the uh, conversation. Do yourself a favour, hunt it down, and have a listen to this uh, charming score uh, complete. There is always something new for us to learn, so if you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Reg Livermore and Chloe Dallimore, just to name a few. I hope you like what I did there. And all the fascinating tales across all stages. Find the podcast on Spotify, Wooshka, or in iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. Take the time to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages. Catch you next time.